Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Hey, yo, the Canadian Investor Pod. What's up? I'm Braden Dennis, joined by Simon Belanger. And we're back with a little bit of a continuation of last episode because. If you didn't know, Simon, last week, pretty sure, that was episode 50, and I'm still not sure how to use recording equipment for a podcast, so um, that might be slightly problematic. So thank you for editing that for four hours. If you're at home right now, golf clap for Simon. Thank you, man. Oh, no problem. I mean, it was definitely a, a challenge, but I uh, can't make uh, audio reappear. So there were just some sections that uh, completely did not record on your end. But uh, maybe it's a sign you'll have to change your uh, 2005 laptop, Braden. <laughs> it is a 2015 Mac Book Pro, okay? These things are supposed to last 10 years, eh? <laughs> so they say. These things, it's uh, it, it overheats that you honestly you can get a suntan just working on here. Uh, as a, I mean, as an Apple shareholder, I strongly recommend that you dish out a few grand to uh, to get a new one. <laughs> the new laptops are outrageously expensive, but uh, you know what? So that's the price you got to pay. All right, we're gonna start with a little bit of a news roundup. Uh, earnings season is in full swing ahead. Um, Reports coming out every single day. Uh, big one yesterday, uh, shares of SAP fell off a cliff. Uh, their largest decline in a long time. Shares down over 20%. Uh, management had poor guidance, and people were wondering if it was a cloud problem or is it just an SAP thing. And Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, said, this is not the cloud biz, this is an SAP thing. So... Uh, interesting things coming out of SAP. This is this is an old old company, but did, did you make anything of this? I mean, it wasn't that bad of a quarter, but it's the first time this company is kind of you know putting on the brakes a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, just managing expectation. A lot of it comes from that. So SAP had been uh, saying that they'd be transitioning from a, a kind of licensing model to a more SaaS model. Um, they were planning to do that by 2023. Now they've said that that'll be 2025. Um, they've also had some um, per, like some integration of businesses that they bought that are not going as smoothly um, their earnings and revenues are slower than expected in their guidance and it makes you wonder if they shouldn't have just provided no guidance for this year and possibly next year due to the pandemic feels like a lot of company had the blank slate when it come, came to that but they still wanted to provide guidance and they did not reach it. So the market reacted accordingly. Um, it'll be interesting to uh, see how their competitors do with the upcoming earnings season. So I'm thinking Salesforce here, um, ServiceNow, uh, Oracle be a very interesting one because they have a pretty strong legacy business as well. So before you kind of put them all in the same bucket, that's what I do is just look at some of their peers and see how they're doing. I have a feeling we don't have a lot of people that own their shares because they're traded in uh, in Europe, I believe, in Frankfurt, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, they have a U.S. listing, though. Do they, they must. Yeah, they must. Yeah, of course. For sure. Um, oh, yeah, they do. 
Sorry they do, that. yeah, they yeah. They, <laughs> they are Ger- they're a Ger- German-founded business, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, sure. So coming out today, actually, uh, Shopify and TikTok could be looking at a deal for a shoppable video ad. That's what the news headline says, whatever that may be. So this is interesting because I think the Walmart and Shopify deal is kind of stalling out. Like, I don't know where that's going. Um, Walmart's going full steam ahead with e-commerce, but it's supposed to be a big deal with Shopify, and that seems to be losing some of the hype. Um, But this deal with TikTok could be quite large. Um, Additionally, Tim Hortons and uh, QSR, Restaurant Brands International, which is ticker QSR, had a... Lackluster quarter. Tim Hortons uh, Burger King sales were were not great. Uh, Popeyes was kind of carrying the 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 business with their uh, their sales up. Uh, revenue totaled one point three four billion, uh, down from one point four six billion in the same period a year ago. I mean, this is not surprising to me at all. Um, I'm not in the office as much anymore, and do I buy less coffees? Yes. Of course, buying less coffee and making more coffee at home. So this is, I don't think, see this as a cause for concern, although I don't like what they've done with the Tim Wharton's brand, um, but that's that's just me. I actually had a Tim Wharton's coffee today because I had to go to the physiotherapist and I, I get my shoulder popped in. That's a story for another time. Um, the coffee I had tasted like soapy bath water so i don't know your stance on tim horton's coffee simon but uh it was completely undrinkable like i don't know how they made such a bad coffee yeah i mean it's never like i've used to drink tim horton's all the time especially when i i started in university and when i had like 8 a.m classes and i just remember first time i tried it a small coffee i'm like oh my god this like is this is awesome. I feel so awake. It's great. And now, obviously, I need multiple coffees a day. But specific to them, I mean, I I drink my coffee black, so it's never been the best taste in terms of coffee. Um, for me, it always had a bit of a soothing taste because it's kind of it's what I started drinking. Uh, but yeah, in terms of quality, I've kind of stayed away from it in the past few years. I used to have maybe once a week. Uh, but yeah, they've I don't know. They haven't really improved much of what i like from them usually their coffee and some of the uh you know the breakfast sandwich and stuff like that so i can definitely understand where you're coming from there um because of that i'm i mean i'm not sure what direction they're going to be honest so it's not a company i'm particularly interested in plus there's been a lot of tensions with their um their franchisees which is not always great to see so that's kind of my take on them yeah no totally um, well, I, I've had lots of their coffees, but this one today was just like, I, I can't even look at Tim Hortons right now. I'm, I'm actually, oh God, it was horrible. Uh, moving on, Synovus Energy, they're going to be acquiring Hus- Husky Energy. These are two oil and gas companies here in Canada. Synovus announced today that they are going to be slashing 20 to 25% of the workforce after the acquisition is complete. Um, This probably makes a lot of sense 
This is a lot more to come. I think this is a look into what's in store ahead for the future with this industry. Um, don't want to make light of people losing their jobs. This is, this is bad. But probably smart from management, and we're going to see more of this if I had to put my money on a, on a bet one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. We've talked about oil and gas a little bit in the past uh, month or so, and it goes down to the same thing, right? It's a really hard business uh, when it comes to the commodity prices really going down really quickly like it's happened this year. Um, who knows where it's going to be in the next few years, so you'll probably see a lot of consolidation like this, a lot of cost savings, people losing their jobs. And of course, obviously, we don't want to make light of the situation. And my, you know, my heart goes to those that have been affected by this or if none of our listeners have, if they know people. Uh, but it's a good reminder in terms of investment, especially in commodities. Um, it's really you can't control the uh, the cause that you'll get per uh, per barrel. So it's a it's a tricky sector to invest just to say the least and we'll probably be see a lot of consolidation in the sector because um yeah you'll have stronger players that'll try to buy um on the cheap players that could be going bankrupt that have good assets and they'll capitalize on that and you know it it probably makes a lot of sense for the the bigger players in that industry to do so yeah totally and this goes back to why i harp on my stock investing checklist so much of does this business have pricing power? If no, I just move on. I don't care how cheap it is. I don't care, uh, you know, how big of a discount to book value I can buy these oil and gas co's. Um, when they don't have pricing power, and there's businesses out there that have ludicrous margins on pricing power, I'm going to move my capital into the latter. Um, so today's segment that was supposed to be on last week's segment, but again, uh, I'm a boomer and don't know how to use technology is Canadian industrials listed on the TSX. I like all four of these companies I'm talking about some more than others. And then I'm going to put Simon on the spot and tell me which one or two, we'll give you or two, but which one based on my pitches here, which one you would pick Simon. Okay. So starting off numero uno is Toramont Industries ticker TIH. Uh Toramont operates two segments of the business. The the much larger segment of the business that I'll be talking about is the equipment group, which is a caterpillar, so like large machinery caterpillar. Uh, their dealership and rental operation of, of caterpillar equipment for the construction business. And this is been a very very interesting business and they're reaching all-time highs right now as the construction industry picks up the the appetite for for assets and and by the way uh the rental business with caterpillar equipment is a surprising win-win for everyone involved um it's good for the constructor um economically it's good for the constructor to rent some of this equipment sometimes and toramont gets the benefit from that. So it's an interesting model and provides value for, for everyone in the value chain, which I like to see. Uh, revenue has been growing at almost 15% a year over the last five years. 
uh, trades at around 2.7 times sales um, and over 25 times earnings. So it's not by any stretch of the matter a cheap uh, company in this in this sector, but it is it is the leader here in Canada. They do some small business as well in the U.S. And their biggest competitor is Finning International. And on a market cap basis, they're just a little over double the size. So Finning has the western side of Canada, and Toromont has pretty much you know Manitoba eastwards. And with mining in full swing right now. And with construction picking back up a lot, they reported some pretty strong quarters. The dividend grows like a weed uh, at over 10% a year, 11.47% on average over the last five years to be exact. And it's a really, really interesting business. It's it's very leveraged to this brand power of Caterpillar. Um, so they are... Uh, very, very tied, these two businesses, of course. So something to consider there is is when you look at this business is what do you think Caterpillar's market share will be and, and continue to be because um, their Toromont's business relies on Caterpillar. Um, all right, moving on. WSP Global, my favorite engineering firm to own on the stock market. They're mostly a grow-by-acquisition co and they buy engineering firms all over the world. Uh, their main segments are transportation and infrastructure, which is about half of sales, property and buildings, environmental, uh, and industrial and energy. So they manage rail, aviation, roads, ports, environmental, um, consulting, all kinds of stuff. And in construction and infrastructure, a very capital-heavy business WSP just provides services, so it's very capital light. And in return, what you see is extraordinary free cash flow compounding. Because they're just providing consulting services, it's capital light, and they acquire firms all over the world. Um, this is a pretty big business, well over $10 billion in market cap, and um, there was rumors of them merging with AECOM, which is a very, very big consulting firm based out of California. And they're very like-for-like like in size. This would be become the biggest engineering firm. And yeah, so 31.5% free cash flow compounded annual growth rate over the last 10 years. 34% on revenue. Uh, wow, uh, pretty impressive. It trades at a pretty penny on earnings, but uh, not on enterprise value to free cash flow. So this is a very free cash flow pumping business. Don't look at the earnings. It's not useful. Um, it's only 15 and a half enterprise value to free cash flow and only 1.1 times sales. So that can give you an idea of how really it's not expensive at all for this growth. It's actually quite cheap. They pay a dividend, but it's at a complete standstill. They've been moving capital. Uh, their capital allocation has been all through acquisitions and not growing the dividend. All right, moving on. My darling of a boring business, TFI International. They're a Canadian uh, business that operates in North America as well. Ticker TFII, which, by the way, earlier this year, they did a New York Stock Exchange listing as well, which has debuted 
excellently, by the way. This stock is up over 160% (laughs) since its March lows. Um, I was recommending it in the Stratosphere Premium and what now is Stratosphere 2 membership, which, by the way, you can go check out completely for free, see all my top picks. TFI, I was recommending in April. Uh, Stock was way too cheap. It's up over 150% since, since those recommendations. And what an incredible capital allocation. Elaine Bedard's an incredible job with this business. Uh, There are some really solid capital allocators coming out of Quebec. Uh, So good job for these Quebecers. 8.4% compound annual growth rate on revenue, um, which is nothing to write home about, but it's been so cheap. And now you're seeing the multiple expand. It trades at uh, 1.6 times sales roughly now. But it used to be a lot cheaper. So what you're seeing now is there was this really, really underpriced growth in transportation and logistics and last mile delivery. Um, I was telling you guys a story before about how I was biking home from work and there was a guy with a TFI international safety vest on and he had like a, like a zillion Amazon packages in his car. I don't even know how they he put them all in there. Like this guy could be a Jenga specialist. The amount of packages he had in his in his truck or van, whatever it was, was incredible. And this last mile delivery is obviously direct consumer has so many tailwinds. And here's this unsexy business who has the, the secret sauce when it comes to acquisitions, buying distressed assets, and swooping in at the right time, integrating them into the system, um, and benefiting from that. So I love finding these underpriced growth opportunities. TFI has been an absolute monster. And uh, it's, it's a great business here. I, I, I like it here. I'd buy more here. All right, hey, Braden. Yeah. Yeah, I was Shoot. going to mention, I think I have an idea of why it was um, a bit underpriced in terms of the uh, multiples. Um, so TFI, but also a lot of trucking companies in general, mm-hmm. um, they had a lot of pressure getting uh, workforce to actually drive the trucks. I remember listening and reading on it a couple of years ago, and that was one of the big challenges is people didn't want to be driving those trucks. So they were having to overpay for uh, truck drivers and I'm assuming that now, given the uh, the situation with the economy and the pandemic in general uh, and all the tailwinds, but also people looking for employment, I feel like that's probably helped resolve to some extent that issue uh, without con- counting, of course, in the future, they may not even need those drivers. But for the time being, I think that might have put pressure on the uh, on the value of the business. You know what? You're probably spot on. Um and the demand for truck drivers is incredibly high. Uh, I remember seeing a stat that it was the number one most in-demand job in, in America, like even two years ago, because there's a lot of trucks that need to be driven and not enough people who want to do it. So that's a, that's a good point. It probably was causing a lot of uh, stress for the business. Going super long-term... Um, this business is going to continue to chug along and, you know, the high single digit revenue probably, but their margins are going to expand on, on very long term. And this is, this is my thesis. Why for, 
for owning this business really, really long term, like 10 plus years, is their two biggest costs are people, as you just mentioned, and fuel. Now, moving forward, there's two things that are going to happen in trucking and logistics is driverless cars is coming. So that's one of them. That's one of those costs. And electric trucks are coming. And they're much cheaper to operate than traditional combustional engines. So if you think about those two large input costs and how they will dramatically change in what I think is not so distant of a future, it's interesting to look at trucking and uh, and think this is a currently unsexy business that when margins dramatically improve the multiple is going to dramatically improve and margins are going to go through the roof again this is not going to happen next week this is this is this is going to take a lot of time but it's something to consider for for a company that is still cheap relatively and the management just gets it like they're i put them I don't think Alain Bedard and his team get enough credit because like Bruce Flat gets so much credit for buying distressed assets for Brookfield Asset Management. And these two guys are like, they must have went to the same school of buying cheap distressed assets because TFI has the secret sauce um, and it's been very, very impressive. So uh, another one that's similar in the fact that it's it's automotive in, in nature is Magna International. Um, and I used to own this stock, and it's very cyclical in nature. They make auto parts for all over the world. They have about 50 plants in Canada, 80 in the U.S. Uh, these are rough numbers, by the way. Uh, close to 100 in Europe, another 50 in China, a bunch in South, South America as well. And... What I think is very underpriced about, yes, is a cyclical business in nature, is the technology that the car, the massive computer that the car has become. And Magna is very instrumental in allowing these OEMs to advance the car uh, into this massive supercomputer that it's become and, and what it is going to become. Like we just talked about driverless cars. And Don Walker, the CEO of Magna International, under his long tenure as the CEO and, and an executive prior, stock tripled under his CEO tenure. They just announced that he will be replaced by the chief technology officer, Swami Kodajiri, in starting Jan 1, so into 2021. And he has been instrumental in truly being a technology play in, in, in auto. Because the car is so complicated and the supply chain is, I think, the most complicated supply chain on the entire planet is the auto parts and and auto manufacturing business. And you could see some interesting underpriced growth in that sector. Now, it's very cyclical. Um, and Simon and I were talking about this offline before is that cyclical businesses like auto parts, you might actually want to buy them when they have the high PE. And you might be thinking, why would I buy a stock when it has a high PE, not a low PE? And the reason for that is because it's cyclical and when earnings drop, that's actually probably when it's cheapest. 
because price over earnings. So typically you'll see the best value on some of these businesses is when the PE is actually at five-year highs, not lows. So something to consider, the stock has grown revenue at 11% compound annual growth rate over the last 10 years, trades at 0.5 times sales, has a 14% gross margin. Of course, it's auto parts. You're not going to see that something like 80% in software. Um, and management's been really good capital allocators, 18.3% return on equity we're not turn on equity. They've grown the dividend at over 15% a year, um, which is quite remarkable. Something I didn't mention on TFI, by the way, last week, they had an awesome quarter last week and grew the dividend 12% last week on their quarter. So something to consider there as well. So three out of these four businesses are incredible dividend growers, uh, typically boring businesses, but get the job done Smart management team, trade on the TSX. I own some of them. Um, Simon, which one are you looking at and, and think is interesting? Uh, well, I do not have any interest in rental equipment and uh, rent large rental equipment. And the cyclicality of uh, Magna is kind of not really interesting for me. I'm not saying it won't be a good investment for people. Just those two companies just don't really excite me. Um, so the two by default then would be WSP and uh, TFI would probably be the ones I'd be most interested in. So the... Um, especially TFI with the logistics and the uh, the boost from e-commerce. Um, I think that's a really interesting Canadian play uh, from that perspective. That's probably still a bit under the radar for a lot of people. So um, probably TFI and then WSP. And the other two I don't think would be on my radar at all. Totally fair. Uh, I am the most bullish on the ones you mentioned as well. Um, TFI being probably the most. But, oh, my God, it's incredible how much free cash flow WSP spins off. I own WSP. It was a stratosphere pick well over a year ago. It's done amazingly, well over 100% since then. TFI as well. So um, I'm patting myself on the back here. But these are under-the-radar growth opportunities in potentially boring businesses, but smart management teams and make good acquisitions, um, which is not always easy to do. And in this day and age, you're probably going to see that accelerate. You see TFI pretty much makes an acquisition, what seems like every week, but it's probably more like every quarter. And uh, yeah, so so very interesting businesses to put on your radar. Again, that's Toromont, the first one, T-I-H, W-S-P, ticker W-S-P, TFI International, ticker T-F-I-I, and Magna International, ticker MG, both Magna and TFI trade on the New York Stock Exchange as well. Yeah, and uh, for those of you, I'm sure a lot of you already know, but I do put the tickers in the show notes. If ever you miss it, don't worry, it'll be in the show notes. Um, and now, speaking of acquisition, we'll actually transition to uh, marijuana or cannabis profitable company part deux. So uh, the one that I teased last week, I'll uh, talk about this week. The name is Industrial Innovative uh, Properties. The ticker is IIPR. So, Brayden, have you ever heard of them or this is brand new information for you? I have heard of it, but what's more important to me is I want to hear you say innovative 
one more I time know. with that cute <laughs> little French accent. Yeah, innovative. Uh, there you go. Oh, innovative, there you go. You nailed yeah, it. Industrial innovative properties, but uh, I think I'll stop here before I mess it up again. So it's a really interesting play, if you ask me. So it is a REIT. Uh, it's listed in the U.S. Um, it is a... Obviously, it's a REIT, so it's not a direct marijuana play. But as a whole, what they do is they um, they have a lease uh, lease back program, which they buy properties from uh, cannabis companies where uh, it's legal in the U.S. Some states where it's legal both uh, recreationally but medically, and some states only medically. And um, so they buy those property backs. They renovate them and then they lease it uh, to the company they bought it from. Um, and what's really interesting is they actually do absolute net leases, which is essentially a lease where the tenant pays everything, um, including uh, some of the uh, maintenance and roof repairs or building repairs. So it's really good because, um, you know, it really it makes sure that they don't have a lot of unforeseen costs. So that's kind of their business model. Um, one thing to understand, so if people kind of start digging, you'll see that the uh, dilution is quite high, which is quite normal for REITs uh, in the U.S. because REITs have to pay 90% of their profits in order to uh, not pay taxes on it. So what tends to happen with REITs in general is they actually... If they want to grow, they do it one of two ways. They either get debt or they issue more shares. So um, IIPR um, has been issuing shares, which makes their balance sheet actually looks pretty good. Uh, they don't have that much debt on the balance sheet itself. And uh, to give you guys an idea of how uh, fast they are growing. So um, in terms of funds from operation, in uh, for the first six months of 2020, they had $36 million, um, versus $9 million in 2019. So that's a four X increase. Um, they paid out 29 million in dividends for the first six months versus uh, 7.8 million last year. Um, again, there's been an increase in shares, so you have to take that into account. But their payout ratio is about 80% for 2020, 85% that it was uh, last year. Um, like I said, they have a lease back program that's really interesting, and they have properties um, in quite a few states that it is legal in the U.S. So just to give you guys an idea, so they have a presence in Illinois, Pennsylvania, um, and I'm going by importance level. So Illinois, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Michigan, California, Florida, New Jersey, Ohio, New York, and then uh, smaller states as well. And you can really see their presence uh, increasing as more and more states legalize it in the U.S. Of course, I've talked about it last week. It's still not legal on the federal level, but again, for them, they don't really have any liability there. Um, they are just leasing the property to cannabis producers, um, so it's a kind of safe play from that perspective. To my knowledge, they don't have that many competitors or any major competitor in that space, and it is still relatively small in terms of market cap. It's only $2.6 billion in terms of market cap, so still fairly unknown and fairly small and because there's still that legal legality aspect to it in the states i think a lot of uh, uh, a lot of analysts are not really following that read so i think it gives uh, people uh, retail investors like us a good opportunity um, if they want to start uh, 
in a position in that company. And again, I've mentioned it, it's profitable. So it's a big difference uh, from the traditional marijuana space. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention about them is their dividend has been increasing like crazy per share. So in 2017, it was 15 cents per share uh, per quarter. And now it's a dollar and six per share. So that's uh, um, that's quite the increase in a matter of three years. Um, don't know if I said 2015, I meant 2017. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's a really interesting play all in all. They seem to have a really solid strategy. Um, it does require a bit more investigation on my part, but it is something I'm considering adding to my portfolio as a more uh, dividend play, of course. I would put that in my RRSP. Um, any questions on, on my take for IPR, Brayden? I'm seeing this explosive growth uh, recently. You know, 36 million in FFO. Right, that's funds from operation, by the way. Um, versus nine million. So this this growth is it is it the construction of new facilities or what, have they pivoted to cannabis? What is the backstory on on that? Because that is really explosive growth for a REIT. Yeah, so my understanding is they have not been building that many properties. It's really what uh, the leaseback program that I was talking about. So they're taking a cannabis company that own their buildings. They're buying it back from them. They're improving them and then releasing it uh, to them. So it provides them with those stable cash flows. Again, there's uh, they're called absolute net lease agreements. So once they're leased, there are very few costs for IIPR. So most of the cost is assumed by the tenant. So it's really it's a really nice play from that perspective. And one of the things that I did forget to mention is for uh, um, pretty much all the states that they have a presence in for all their tenants uh, basically cannabis was considered a uh, essential business so that's oh. really good oh it's essential oh for sure <laughs> yeah well if, with the exception of one state so they did mention that on their conference call massachusetts um, did keep it essential for medical purposes but not recreational but all the other states, um, they kept it as an essential business. They only had three uh, companies that they deal with that had um, they had rent deferral in, in place, and it was only for a few months. And now they're paying rent again, and there's actually they're they've come to the agreement where the deferral will be amortized over like an eighteen month period with those companies. But the uh, basically, I think they're upwards of ninety percent, if not ninety five percent, in terms of rent collection during the pandemic. Um, so that's been their business model. Um, from what I understand, they've always been in that space. So that's why they were really small when they listed uh, about four years ago. And they they have that business model. Seems to be working quite well. It's kind of a bit of an acquisition strategy in a weird kind of way. Uh, but I really, I mean, I do like it. I don't mind that they're issuing more shares to do that strategy because it seems to be paying off, uh, literally paying off dividend for shareholders. Interesting. So what is the the yield right now? You, you mentioned it's definitely grown yeah. like a weed. Uh, no pun intended 8. on by that. It's grown yeah. like a weed. <laughs> 3.8% right now. So it's a quite interesting yield, so especially for those who want uh, some exposure to the cannabis sector. Um, 
yeah, a bit more indirect exposure, but still some exposure that's really interesting. Maybe some people that are, you know, retirees that want some exposure, but that would like a dividend payment at the time. 3.84% uh, is nothing to sneeze at. And it's uh, for a re 80% of FFO for payout ratio to me is, uh, is perfectly reasonable. So uh, definitely something to consider uh, for those who want something. Again, like I mentioned, that's profitable. So is this a former, like I'm, try, I'm trying to understand the, the background here because this is new to my radar. Is, is it a former cannabis code that spun off the real estate? I don't know. That's a good question. Okay. So I didn't, because, uh, I didn't go into that far out. Yeah. It almost sounds, because of those things you mentioned, it almost sounds exactly like the company we just talked about, Magna International, they used to own all of the real estate that they operate in, all, all those industrial properties their plants were in, uh, here in Canada anyways. And they actually spun off the plants and they would start paying a newly created REIT called Granite Real Estate Investment Trust, which has been a very good performer in the industrial REIT space in Canada, but that was actually Magna's business that they spun off and publicly listed as elite as a REIT and then paid uh, paid the lease to. So it, it almost sounds like that's what this is. But again, I'd have to, I'd have to check. Yeah, it uh, could be. And I mean, what's really allowing them to make a lot of these acquisition and legalization might actually be a detriment to this business. Um, the reason for that is right now, when you have these cannabis producer in all these legal states, it, they have to be well funded on a private basis because uh, for they're not allowed to list on any of the stock exchanges in the U.S. because it's not legal on the federal level. And it's also very difficult for them to get loans from banks. So that's why a lot of them are resulting into this approach because it's a way for them to get that cash flow. So IIPR gives them the money for the building. They have that infusion of cash and then they basically rent it out back to them. So I th I'm not sure. Maybe the legal could actually be a detriment to this company as weird as it may sound yeah very very counterintuitive but uh yeah so this is this is an interesting play one one uh one to dig into more i think given that guys it's good for this week we'll see you next week if you have not been to stratospherinvesting.com or getstockmarket.com. That's the exact same URL redirect, stratosphereinvesting.com, by the way. You can try Stratosphere 2 entirely for free. You don't need a credit card. You can make an account. It takes one minute, and you can get all of the data that I'm talking about. When I'm talking about growth rates, when I'm talking about dividend yields, when I'm talking about uh, different companies that meet certain screens, that's all on that platform all those stats are directly on there for any company you want to search up you can search by ticker you can search by name you can use the stock screener there's a community forum you can go introduce yourself getstockmarket.com you can go on there make an account try it out no commitment if you like it you can join the membership and that will do it for this week guys we will see you guys next week bye-bye the Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. 
Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.